Welcome to Episode 18 of the Pilot's Journey Podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and enjoying the journey. I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stew, a private pilot in North Dallas. And my name's Mike Hart, a.k.a. Mike Stew, private pilot and aircraft owner IFR student in Idaho Falls, Idaho. CFI Stu couldn't join us this time, but we've got a packed Oshkosh preview show with Pilot Kent from the Pilot Cast, Adam Fast, and Monica Petrillo. But first, this from one of my favorite aviation organizations, the 1940s Air Terminal Museum in Houston, Texas. Have you ever dreamed of taking to the skies in your very own airplane? You can get your chance and support a great aviation organization at the same time. The 1940 Air Terminal Museum at Hobby Airport in Houston, Texas is selling raffle tickets to give away a vintage Cessna. For more information, visit www.1940airterminal.org. Joining us this episode, we have two special guests. Uh, the first is Kent Shook, Flying Cheesehead on Twitter and also the pilot cast. And he's flown in and out of Oshkosh several years now. We also have Adam Fast, which is Adam Can Fly on Twitter. And this is, will be Adam's first time flying in, as it is for Mike. Yeah, and uh, so the, the Oshkosh arrival is a, a storied uh, and uh, very, uh, I think every pilot at some point has to do the Hajj uh, and fly to, fly to Oshkosh, or at least we all want to. Uh, and uh, I think one of the things we wanted to talk about today, Kent, and specifically Kent, uh, make you come to mind because it seems like this is... Uh, Maybe old hat is maybe not the right term, but uh, you've done it a few times. So, so tell us a little bit about you know, your perspective, how many times you've done the OSH arrival, and uh, uh, give some tips for, for Adam and I as uh, pilots looking to fly to OSH this year. Well, I first started flying into Oshkosh uh, about five years ago, and really I've done the approach quite a few more times than that because... Uh, as a resident of Wisconsin, I feel like I should be a good host, and so what I tend to do is a couple times every year I will fly out to Milwaukee or something and pick up somebody who is not lucky enough to be able to fly a GA airplane in, and uh, you know, so they'll airline to Milwaukee, and I'll go down and pick them up and uh, bring them to Oshkosh in style. So I've done the approach quite a few times. So do you end up doing uh, the rival multiple times then, uh, yeah. several times per Osh? Right. Each each year I leave Oshkosh a couple of times and I go down to Milwaukee and pick somebody up and bring them back to Oshkosh in style and, you know, of course, the way it was meant to be done. <laughs> and a GA airplane. So um, I've flown the arrival quite a few times now and uh, gotten a lot more comfortable with it than I was the first time. It's uh, definitely very intimidating the first time and hopefully by doing this show, we can uh, help people out and have them be a little bit more confident and know what's happening their first time in. So, and Adam, where are you coming from? Which direction are you going to be departing from to get to Oshkosh? I'm going to be leaving from uh, Joplin, Missouri, which is to the southwest. Yeah, and I was. I mean, what's funny is half of me is wondering, you know, given the, the population of the United States is dominant along the eastern seaboard, and you're certainly a lot closer on the eastern side. I assume a lot more of their rivals are coming from the east. Has that been your experience, Ken? Well, I think uh, many more are actually coming from the south. <laughs> That's uh, true. It is a northern a location. Very large, very cold lake. Well, no, it's it's that we have Lake Michigan just to the east, and uh, right. there are a lot of pilots who will not cross it. Now, 
Uh, I have a very specific set of conditions that I will cross Lake Michigan under, which uh, I think I've discussed on the pilot cast a few times uh, for the specifics. But um, one of the planes in my logbook went to the bottom of Lake Michigan in about April of 2006, I think it was. And uh, the pilot successfully ditched. He was able to call 911 from the wing of the airplane, but he died because the water's cold. Right. Right. And actually, the interesting thing is that the Chicago lakefront will be almost as busy as the Oshkosh arrival. In terms of aircraft traffic? Because a lot of the people who are coming from the east are going to be coming up the Chicago lakeshore. So, yes, yes, you'll have people just shooting right up the lakeshore at about 2,000 feet, which is outside Bravo. And Luckily, uh, in more recent years, just in the last couple, they've started actually talking to small airplanes in the Chicago area, especially during (laughs) Oshkosh. Uh, so it is getting the Chicago approach going up the lakeshore now, which is a very, very good thing. But yeah, that's that's definitely going to be a very busy spot on the way up. And I assume that probably to the west of the Chicago Bravo is probably going to be fairly busy as well uh, for the people who are avoiding the lakefront. Well, tell so, me what, about uh, you know your very first time and how your lead your mental lead up to that first time, how that changed, or how actually doing it uh, changed. Uh, your perspective on you know because it's it's pretty intimidating looking at the at the notum and and thinking about all those planes converging on one point in space and time. What did you get yourself psyched up for, and how, how did it how did the reality of your first experience differ from what you were th- expecting? Well, I'm sure that you guys are doing what I did the first time that I went up in there, and that is you've read the notum forwards, backwards, upside down. You stick it on your pillow when you go to sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And the notum has lots and lots of good information, and I really recommend that everybody who's going to go in for the first time read the entire notum, even all the parts that don't apply to you, just so you can kind of get an idea of how the airspace is all put together. Um, It's a very tight puzzle that they've put together, but it's really pretty impressive how it all works. Um, You know, we're mostly concerned uh, for this show with the Fisk VFR arrival, but there are also IFR arrivals, there's the Warbird arrival, there's helicopters, there's ultralights, and, of course, the thing that everybody forgets about at Oshkosh, which is hey, there's a departure procedure as well. So um, all of that stuff is stacked up, and in some cases, very tight. I mean, you may have aircraft that are 200 feet below you, and that's exactly where they're supposed to be. So definitely read the entire notum and just kind of uh, build a mental picture of how everything fits together and where things are going to be so that you're not surprised. But some of the things that you read in there, you're, it's just a little bit different when you actually get to fly the procedure. For example, uh, the first time you fly in, it's really hard to find Fisk. And that's where you're supposed to be expecting instructions. And, you know, if you're like me and you fly a white Cessna, well, chances are there's another white Cessna in front of you and maybe another white Cessna behind you. And so it's kind of hard to tell, okay, which time are they asking me to rock my wings? I know the first time I went in, I ended up rocking my wings twice. Because <laughs> the first time I was, you know, I was all excited and I thought I was, well, hey, I must be pretty close to Fisk here. It's only a half mile or something. But no, there was actually another airplane in front of me. So, 
did they notice you you rocking your wings out of sequence and, and kind of no no and in fact the interesting thing is they can't see very far down the tracks um you know they they maybe have a half mile or a mile that they can see down the tracks real easily um, I've actually spent half a day out at Fisk Approach just watching them work, and it's it's amazing. It's really cool. But, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to spot Fisk. So if you have a GPS, uh, Rippon and Fisk are both in the database. Uh, Fisk is F-I-S-K-E in the database. Um, so definitely plug both of those as well as the Oshkosh Airport into your GPS before you fly in. Uh, they do specifically say in the notum, though, you do not fly directly from Ripon to Fisk. You follow the railroad tracks, and there's a little bit of a dogleg there. But um, there are quite a few visual aids along the way. There will be orange arrows that are painted on the ground, uh, like on the railroad tracks and along the roads and such that you're supposed to fly along for the various procedures. Fortunately, the uh, the arrows are about the width of the railroad tracks, and you know three or four times as long, so they're pretty visible. Um, and it, of course, there's only one set of tracks that's leading northeast out of Ripon, so the the real trick is finding Ripon in the first place, and and from there, it's really pretty easy to to see where they want you to go. So once you but find yeah, Ripon, you will be Ripon. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Bad joke, sorry. But yeah, there's a little bit of a dog, little bit of a dog leg in the tracks that you're uh, supposed to follow. Unfortunately, there could be a strobe at Fisk, and they have gotten rid of the strobe, which I don't quite agree with because I thought that was the uh, the best way to actually spot Fisk. But the problem was there's a tower about halfway up the tracks that also has a white strobe on it, and I think people were getting confused with that one. So. What you'll end up seeing is uh, Fisk is a very, very small town. A road that kind of leads north away from the tracks. And right next to that road is a little mobile home type thing. And you'll see about five guys standing outside there in pink shirts. And, well, I, I should say maybe you'll see that. Again, it's, it's kind of hard to spot the first time. But the GPS will definitely help. And, of course, Mike, you're a, you're a fan of Dead Reckoning. <laughs> 90 knots and uh how many miles is it from ripping to fisk and you should have a pretty good idea just based on the clock if you uh, right. start your timer or ripping uh which uh which airplane they're talking to and when you're getting close to fisk right so uh what was the in terms of your experience of uh was there something that really was unexpected uh from your or or th- what things became easier as you did it repeatedly and what things remained hard well, I guess the unexpected part of that question is actually a, a very good question. Uh, it's one thing to read the letters that they have on the paper in the notum, and it's another thing to actually fly the whole thing. I was kind of surprised the first time I went in. Um, they assigned me the runway 18 right approach uh, along the east-west road. There's actually two different approaches to the 18 runways. Um, but yeah, so they assigned me to fly east along the road and then do the pattern to 1-8. That's a very different pattern that you're normally going to fly. It says in the notum, start descending as soon as you turn from crosswind to downwind. And I went, okay. And I, did, I didn't really think much farther than that, but boy, that's a different pattern. Uh, there really is no final. You 
point at the blue dot or the tower at, for your uh, base leg. And you pretty much are starting the turn to final at maybe 100 feet off the ground, and you level out and flare and you're down. Uh, so that's obviously something very unusual and not something you're going to do in normal VFR operations. So, you know, there are a few things like that that it wouldn't hurt to go out with a CFI and practice them at your home field if you have a runway long enough that you can fly your base aimed right at the threshold um, and still land safely. Uh, I really think that that's an important thing for people to do. Uh, another one is to know what power settings for your specific airplane will result in 90 knots and level flight. Uh, because everybody needs to fly 90 knots uh, if they're capable at 1,800 feet from Ripon to Fisk and then along whichever procedure track they assign to you. Because uh, if you're going the wrong speed, well, you start eating up that half mile that you have in between the guy in front of you and the guy behind you really pretty quickly. That's an important thing to do is to go out, and you've probably done this in your instrument training too, is to just go out and find... Uh, what power settings work for each speed and each configuration that you want. So um, that's definitely something you want to do before you're flying along the railroad tracks is to find out what that power setting is that you need. So when you get to Ripon, you can just set that power setting and forget about it, and you'll be going 90 knots. Probably one of the challenges is, not, is being uh, led astray by your GPS giving you ground speed because 90 knots of, of airspeed is not the same as 90 knots ground. I know the, they're, they're wanting you to maintain 90 knots airspeed. Yeah, and there are plenty of airplanes flying into Oshkosh that do not have GPSs or even electrical systems for that matter. And, you know, so the, the guy in the J3 has got to be able to do the same thing as the guy in the 182 and... Um, you know, you might have a Baron that's doing the exact same thing, only they're going to be doing it at 135 knots, 500 feet above you. So, um, yeah, it's 90 knots of indicated airspeed. Yeah, I'm looking at the east-west road to uh, Fisk. I can see what you're talking about. That you basically, yeah, you have to immediately uh, go from base to final. Yeah, that's just something they don't really spell out right there in the notum. How much of a challenge is it to land on a specific dot? Well, you know, that depends. Uh, I, I did once have a great approach where I aimed right at the dot and I bounced the airplane right off of that dot and uh, landed again about 500 feet further down the runway. But but you um, hit the dot. That's the important part. You know, you you don't necessarily have to have to nail it just right, but uh, you know, you you do want to land close. So maybe you want to aim a little bit short and uh, you know, go ahead and make sure that you're slow enough that you're not going to float halfway down the runway. So, um, you know, if, if Oshkosh is the first flight you're going to take this year, uh, please leave the plane at home. You know, there's nothing wrong with uh, flying the airlines or driving to Oshkosh, and uh, you definitely want to be on top of your game with your airplane if you're going to be flying in. As far as the dots are concerned, one question I have, are there so many because they're landing multiple airplanes on the same runway at once, or is there another another reason they do that? Well, yes, they're not all of the dots are used for that. For example, uh, on one eight, the blue dot—that's uh, the dot where you're going to be aimed at that dot when you're on base, because uh, you know you can't really fly a normal pattern to one eight because you'd be running into the people who are on final for two seven. So. 
not all of the dots are used for landings, but yeah, they do sometimes land airplanes simultaneously on the same runway. Um, and the dots are plenty far apart for that for the most, most of the airplanes we're flying. Um, okay. That's another thing that they do on the departure as well. Uh, they're going to be leaving people up uh, as if it's a highway instead of a runway. You're not going to take off on a center line when you leave Oshkosh. You're probably going to be either on the left half of the runway or the right half of the runway. Uh, and they'll have, you know, there'll be a line waiting to take off coming from both sides of the runway. And they'll have, uh, you know, they'll position and hold on the left side when the right side gets cleared for takeoff. And as, you know, that guy will start rolling, they'll position and hold the guy right behind him. And they'll clear the guy on the left-hand side of the runway for takeoff. So when you start your takeoff roll, the guy in front of you is not even going to be off the ground yet. You're definitely going to be operating a lot closer to some other people than you might be used to. Now, on the departure, do you, because uh, that, that actually did, uh, was interesting to me, because I was thinking, it's like, well, okay, we all get there at once, and that's clearly got a, a lot of congestion, but I was just thinking of that exact thing, of uh, departing, and, uh, you, know, you know, there's some dispersal, but it, at, when you initiate, you're, you, everyone's pretty much all there at once. Do you also aim for that 90 knots? Is, you know, because I could see easily being able to overtake a plane that doesn't climb as fast or... Uh, you know, there's so many different ways to do your climb out uh, in terms of you can do it steep and keep a slow speed and get a lot of altitude, or you can do a, you know, a shallow climb and just, you know. Well, I think on. one of the most important things on the departure that gets forgotten by a lot of people is that you're not supposed to climb more than 500 feet off the ground. You know, let's say they're uh, departing runway 27, well, they are probably landing on runway 27 as well. Um, and they actually use both of the larger runways at the same time for pretty much the whole show. Uh, so you'll have either 18 eight or 36 will be in use and either nine or 27 will be in use. But uh, one thing that uh, you really do need to watch out for, and I, I've kind of briefed this with people when I bring them in for the first time, is that the, if they're using runway 27, you really need to watch if you're on the arrival for people who kind of forget that they're supposed to stay down at 1,300 feet MSL and they just keep on climbing because they climb right through the arrivals um, who are following the railroad tracks. Uh, so that's uh, definitely something to watch for. But, yeah, the, that's why the arrivals are supposed to be at 1,800 feet there. And the departures, uh, I'm, I believe every single runway uh, on departure, you're supposed to stay down at 1,300 feet MSL, which is only 500 feet off the ground. So that's another thing that's very unusual is leveling off that low because for the most part, we just don't do that in normal flight operations. We're going to be climbing to uh, get as much altitude as we can just in case something happens. But, yeah, on the departure at Oshkosh, you have to stay at 1,300 feet until you're outside the Class D airspace. So five miles out, and then people start turning and climbing and going wherever they go. But again, I depart Sunday uh, generally, and it hasn't been that big of a deal. You know, I, I haven't ever come close to running into anybody on the way out. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think things do disperse pretty well. Um, the closest I've ever actually come to running into anybody on the way in or out of Oshkosh was actually before I ever got to Ripon. Uh, you know, I saw a little fleck on the horizon off my left that didn't appear to be moving, and uh, it turned out it was a Grumman Tiger that was on their way into Fond du Lac. 
it was about 90 degrees off my course. And, you know, I saw that spot and I kept watching them and they kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> when, you know, I ended up not having to take evasive action, but they were really close by the time they finally passed me. So, According to the NOTAM, if, you, uh, if they clear you on a runway 9 departure, there's no 500 feet AGL, but all the others have that. Yeah, and, uh, well, part of that is probably because, well, there are no arrivals that are coming in straight over runway 9. I, there are headings that you have to fly coming off runway 9, I believe. It's either... 040 to 090. Right, right, east or northeast, uh, or anywhere in that quadrant. But there are no arrivals coming in there. But you do have Lake Winnebago below you, so... Exactly, and I don't know if I want to cross that in a single engine. Yeah, yeah. It's not that big of a lake, and it's a lot warmer than Lake Michigan is, I'm sure, but (laughs) still uh, not something that you necessarily want to go swimming in. But at the same time, it sure is entertaining to fly low across a, a flat piece of real estate, whether it's a dry lake bed or a, or a lake. There's a certain feel that comes with going fast, really low to the ground. Definitely. But safety is not one of those feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kent, one question that I had uh, asked you on Twitter that I'll, I'll repeat here for the sake of anyone else. If you listen on the radio, um, you know, live ATC or any of those things, Something you'll hear a lot and read in the notum is uh, acknowledge instructions with a vigorous wing rock. And I was looking for some clarification as to what exactly vigorous meant. Yeah, they really don't define that in the notum at all. Um, And like I said on Twitter, I pretty much do about uh, 30 degrees of bank either side. Uh, And I've been thanked for that a couple of times. Uh, But again, it's uh, generally very turbulent at that time of year. And so I, I think, you know, some of the people who maybe only go 10 degrees to either side of level, uh, you know, it just looks being hit with a couple of bumps or something. So the controllers definitely like it when you do 20 or 30 degrees of bank. And so they know that you heard them. No snap rolls though, huh? No, no, it's probably a bad idea. Although I, I really would love to just go in there with an aerobatic airplane sometime and, you know, for the wing rock, just do a, a quick 360 degrees each way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know they're talking to you if they say uh, the inverted extra, rock your wings. <laughs> right, right. Now there's, there's a concept for you. Doing the Osh- there's nothing in the note that says you have to do it vertical or, or right side up, right? You can do it uh, inverted. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there might be some other regulations that cover that. But, <laughs> yeah, uh... probably so. <laughs> The first time I went to Oshkosh was in 1987, and they actually had a guy who had built an experimental airplane that had landing gear above the airplane as well as below, and so he was able to, you know, he did his little air show act and landed inverted. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's classic. Interesting stuff. Once you arrive at Oshkosh, I know they have you exit the runway at a relatively high speed for a non-paved exit. Is that anything to be concerned about, or do you have to be careful of running over uh, like runway lights or anything like that? Well, I think the runway lights, if I recall correctly, are a ways away from the pavement, and what they do is they actually have uh, taxiways pretty much, as well as, you know, you kind of have the exit area immediately next to the runway, 
and then they'll have, have grass taxiways, uh, two of them farther out from that. Um, but yeah, you definitely want to get off the runway as quickly as possible. So once you're down, you know, go ahead and brakes, kind of make it a, a short field type of landing. And by the time you get off the runway, you're not really going that fast anymore. You know, so it's, it's really not too bad. The grass is in good shape and, um, obviously they're expecting a whole lot of people to be doing this. And so, uh, they've got the field pretty well taken care of. And I haven't really found that to be a, a scary experience at all, luckily, but, uh, yeah, they'll generally tell you, you know, exit left or exit right or something like that when things are slow. But, uh, yeah, the, the point is to get the heck off the runway as quick as you can so that the next airplane can land. Describe what happens next. So I'm a first time arrival, uh, I've uh, had all my uh, focus on uh, the the correct dot. I put it down the dot, and uh, what am I expecting happens next? Are they going to tell me uh, uh, exit left, exit right, or uh... sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But uh, I think the notum says right in it, do you know exit? Please. You know, whatever's most comfortable for you, it might be better to go to the left uh, your first time just because you'll be able to see the grass a little bit better going that way. Most of the most of the arrivals end up on uh, the east-west, right? Or or is it uh, pretty much a, uh, you could get anything? Is there a dominant? You, you pretty much could get anything. Um, sometimes uh, when things are slow enough, the guys at Fisk will actually ask you which one you want. And so if you kind of look at the layout of the field before you get there and uh, get an idea where you're parking, you might be able to save yourself some taxi time. You know, if you're planning on camping in the North 40, well, you're going to want to land on either 9 or 2-7. Um, you know, the first time I went in, I was camping in the North 40, and I ended up going into 1-8, and it took about 20 minutes to taxi to my parking spot. So, um you know, you end up going all the way up the show line and then all the way around the whole uh, 927 runway. So it takes a while. Um, now, that can be cool, too. I did get to watch the beach starship land right in front of me. So uh, definitely some interesting experiences to be had. But, yeah, if you're wanting to minimize your taxi time, you know, if you're paying for an airplane on Hobbs time, especially, you're going to want to do that. So, uh, you know, if they offer you the option, yeah, go ahead and take 927. Um, but yeah, they may assign anything to you and, uh, right. you know, just kind of depends on what's going on in the field. You know, once in a while there'll be a, a little incident or something, you know, somebody will ground loop or, you know, maybe bend something and then that runway is going to be shut down a little bit. And so they have to try and cram everybody onto the other runway. But, uh, you know, the guys at Fisk are really pretty good, and they can get a, a pretty good idea of where you might be going. You know, if they see a Cessna 195, well, they figure, that okay, that guy's going to be in vintage, and so they'll send him over to 18 or 36. And, you know, your average white Cessna, well, they'll probably send that to 927, but it, it really depends on the traffic because things vary a lot. So well, you know, uh, you're going to get what you're going to get in some in some cases, and other cases they'll actually let you ask for what you want. Once once you get on the ground, so again, uh, you, I know you you basically have the uh, you're supposed to print your placards that describe where you want to go. What your uh, do they pretty much pick that out and then 
then you get progressive by the guys on the on the ground, or are you on your own recognizance to figure out the the lay of the uh, taxiways? No, you're they uh, they give you great guidance the whole way. Basically, uh, air traffic control does not handle the ground except for the runways and and anybody who's IFR. So what'll happen is you land on whatever runway you get, you exit off into the grass. And, you know, at that point, go ahead and bring the plane to a stop and, you know, clean it up, do your after-landing checklist, then pull out that sign that you made that says, you know, GAC or GAP or whatever. There's about nine different areas you can potentially park in. Um, but just put that sign up in the window, and they'll have uh, flagmen all over the field, you know, about every couple of hundred feet who are looking at your sign and waving you in the correct direction, and you really don't have to worry about that at all uh they'll wave you right to your parking spot so uh makes it pretty easy and it keeps that workload away from the actual air traffic controllers uh, there's a lot of uh, civil air patrol cadets and such who volunteer for that as well and uh, so yeah that's that's pretty cool and it works very well now is the parking uh, you know you have the north 40 for camping and then uh you know, I'd like to think that my 1960 182 is vintage. Uh, am I am I remiss in thinking that, or is that uh, considered? Oh, yeah, sure, that's a classic. No, it 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 fits vintage. Uh, yeah, it 1960 vintage. <laughs> yeah, my uh, 1966 Cherokee. I'm going to come in is in is vintage as well. Is that where you're planning on going, Adam? Well, since I'm camping, I'm probably just going to go to general aviation parking. Um, Otherwise, if I go to the camping, I have to pay to park, and uh, just well, parking is free. Well, I, I noticed that the um, uh, vintage area is closer to Camp Scholler, it looks, looks like, and therefore it's like, Watch. oh, well, then vintage would be the way to go. Now, does it, do those tend to fill up, is it the North 40 fill up faster? I mean, I, I understand last year it was uh, chock-a-block full for a while, and they were accepting no more airplanes, correct? Yeah, I think it pretty much, uh, that happens for some span of time every year. Uh, you know, I think, for example, Monday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon will probably be pretty busy. Uh, and, you know, they may close the field. But, yeah, I'm not really sure how fast Vintage fills up. I've only ever gone to the North 40 because the 182 I fly is not quite Vintage yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I want to say uh, 1968 is the dividing line there. If you're right, that sounds right. It's older than 68. It's vintage. And, um, newer is well, not vintage. But Adam, so you're fly you're planning on flying into or parking in the parking area rather than the uh, than having camping. Right, just because uh, I'm going to be staying in an RV and so over in Scholler. So if I can. Uh, Parking is free, and I don't believe th there may be a vintage parking. In which case, I'll go to that. But if the only vintage is uh, camping, then I'll just go to parking. Yeah, I, I have you know the the notum is is very explicit. Yeah, it, it obviously has all the information. But then the, what I've I've found uh, maps of the site, but they're all from last year. And and uh, have they updated and posted new new details on where everything is located on the ground? I wouldn't expect things to move a whole heck of a lot, especially from last year, in terms of where all the different parking areas are, at least. 
been there, they're pretty much the same. I think the parking and the camping areas are pretty much the same. Uh, it's the, the exhibit areas that they're still in flux, right. and that's probably what they're waiting for on releasing the, the final maps. Right. Is Having never been there, it's like, well, I guess, it, uh, and knowing that it had changed, it's like, okay, well, then... I don't want to make a bunch of mental plans for situational awareness uh, that might uh, change. But I guess you, that's the whole point is you have to be adaptable, be able to have good aeronautical decision-making when things are different than uh, what you're expecting. Definitely. And bring lots of cash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I found out that I have potentially wife approval factor for buying a, uh, a hangar that comes with a Lance Air, and, and that may affect my ability to travel to Oshkosh because I, the cash flow for, for one may, may not uh, allow for both. My trip to Osh is now at play because of the potential to buy a hangar. Now, you got my standing offer on that Lance Air, right? I, yeah, I do. I do. And, 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 man, is it a beautiful plane. I, I, uh, uh, but anyway, that's... So, uh, what, did the 182 not take enough of your money or how does that work <laughs> well it's a combination of a lot of little things one is it's always good to have a ha- own a hangar so there's a ch- chance to uh instead of renting i always prefer owning versus renting and the there's a 10 10 people on the waiting list for buying a hangar or building a hangar so it's it's hard to come the hangars are hard to come by the one that is sale the guy also happens to have he, he can't really sell the hangar until he sold the lance air in it for business I, I i found that when i when i bought the plane i was really really planning on buying it for again for personal reasons and what has turned out to be uh the story of my aviation career is i fly it that fly the wings off for professional reasons because it's just so easy to uh to do long trips that i you know i can get a lot more business accomplished by having a small airplane. And so that, that, the, the combination of the fact that even though I have a, a very wonderful uh, partner in the, or a co-owner on my aircraft, uh, it's still available to him you know, half of the time and available to me half the time. And so the half that I might not be able to fly, a Lancer that goes 185 knots on six gallons an hour just sounds really particularly appealing. Wow. So <laughs> that's fast on not much. Yeah, well, I, I, that may be a little bit extreme. It's got the it's the two thirty five, uh, the Lancer two thirty five. So it's uh, uh, a one, basically a Cessna one hundred and fifty engine in a in a, a really clean airframe. Wow! But the the book well, values well, are the reason it's going so fast is you have to be able to get out of it faster because it's not as comfortable as the 182, right? That, that's the one thing. It, it, it is kind of like, uh, I would refer to it as the William F. Buckley position. You know, you're kind of leaned back and slouched a lot to get comfortable. Hey, Mike, I'll go back and correct myself. I'm, I'm looking at the uh, notum a little more closely. There is a special vintage airplane parking mm. besides, besides just camping. So I will probably park there since it is closer to shoulder, and I'll have to... Well, that's kind of what I was... Throw all my noticing. stuff over. Yeah, just from the standpoint of uh, where the um, social festivities for the, for the, the various tweeters and uh, podcasters, Camp Shoulder seems to be the uh, social central. And so, so yeah. I, even though a lot of me wants to... Uh, that's, that's, that's the one of the questions maybe back to you, Kent, which is, you know, you have... Oshkosh, how much of, you know, there's the 
obviously it's all about people and of course the people who you are meeting uh, or know virtually that you're wanting to connect the dots with but then there's also just the random encounters of the people you are camping next to uh, so you kind of get more of that at uh, the North 40 whereas going to meet meetups uh, is a kind of a different purpose I'm kind of uh, half of me is conflicted it's like well you know maybe I should spend half of the time with the people I'm meeting up with and half the time just sort of the authentic Oshkosh experience of randomized who you're camping next to, get to know them. Well, I guess all I can say is bring a really, really good pair of shoes. You're going to need them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll second that. Well, it sounds like no matter what, it's a a no-lose either way. Yeah, I mean, you would have to try really, really hard not to have just the best time of your life at Oshkosh. Um, and especially, you know, staying on the field, I think, is really the way to do it because, you know, where else can you be looking at airplanes and going to airplane forums and such all day long? And, uh, you know, you you run into all kinds of different people. Uh, you know, then you go to sleep in the middle of a bunch of airplanes with airplane people all around you. And then you wake up in the morning when the Ford Trimotor takes off. <laughs> There's no experience like it, just, you know, immersing yourself in aviation 24-7 for a whole week. Well, so tell me about the uh, the IFR arrival. Have you done that? It sounds like I remember listening to Pilot Cast when you're talking about one of the benefits of an IFR rating is it makes the Oshkosh arrival even easier. Well, and that's because, uh, well, officially, if you read the notum, they will flat out tell you if it's VMC, please cancel and fly the Fisk VFR arrival. Basically, the people I know that want to do it IFR are the people who are going to leave their flight plan in effect until they're on the ground. And the reason they want to do that is so that they don't have to tangle it up with people on the Fisk VFR arrival. Um, And in terms of that, it's going to be just like any other IFR arrival. Uh, except for all of a sudden you're going to be on final and there's airplanes everywhere. Um, so, I, you know, personally, I don't mind flying the uh, the VFR procedure, and I kind of think it's fun, and it's kind of a rite of passage, too, to, to fly the Fisk approach. And so, uh, yeah, I have not actually done the, the IFR arrival. Uh, I haven't had the need. And the other thing is you do have to go through the uh, – uh, the FAA's special traffic management program, uh, you know, you have to have a slot reservation and then you have to confirm it once or twice. And, um, you know, I, I would rather just fly in VFR. Imagine them calling, ATC calling traffic. You have 300 planes at your 12 o'clock. Well, now here, you know, that brings up something that's definitely worth mentioning. Um, one of the things you may see in the notum there is that within, I think it's 30 miles of Oshkosh, you're supposed to turn off your transponder. And that's right, because there that's are it. so many airplanes that it would overwhelm the ATC radar. And so everybody within 30 miles is turning their transponder off. So you will not get traffic calls all of your traffic gadgets, I mean, an airliner with full TCAS will not call traffic at Oshkosh because all of that depends on transponders. Everybody's transponders turned off. It doesn't matter who you are, IFR, VFR, 
you know, a Satabria all the way up to an A380, you got to keep your eyes open and look outside because that's the only thing you got working for you. Does that make it less safe to fly in by yourself then? Well, you know, it sure doesn't help or it sure doesn't hurt to have extra eyes in the cockpit, um, be they trained or even untrained, you know. If you're bringing in somebody who's not a pilot, you know, go ahead and give them a full briefing that, you know, hey, if you see another airplane and it doesn't look like it's moving much relative to us, and, you know, please let me know as soon as possible because, you know, that's uh, one of my fears is that, you know, I think when there is a midair at Oshkosh, it will probably be between, uh, well, at least one airplane will probably be somebody who's got their head down looking at their little gadget hoping it's going to tell them where the traffic is, but... Uh, basically all of the onboard traffic systems, as well, of course, as ATC radar, all depend on transponders. Uh, you know, ATC radar will have primary targets, but they won't know what altitude they're at. So, again, within a pretty good distance of Oshkosh, you're not going to be getting flight following because there's just too many airplanes. So you really got to keep your eyes open and your head outside. On that subject, uh, as a non-instrument rated guy who's planning to come up i do plan to use flight following for basically as far as i can uh, the notum says absolutely not within 70 nautical miles um, have you ever used that on your way in just to kind of give you a little bit of a help well i will say that uh i know that you know i fly in and out of the madison area sometimes when i'm uh when it's right around Oshkosh time, and they do uh, give some pretty good service. You know, I think if you come up through Madison sector, you're fairly likely to get uh, get flight following. Um, You know, you may not get handed off from Rockford to Madison or wherever you're coming from, but, you know, Madison has just wonderful controllers that uh, really try and help in any way they can. And they actually set up, uh, normally we have two radar positions at Madison, uh, you have 135.45 west of the Madison Airport, and you have 120.1 east of the Madison Airport. Uh, during Air Venture, they'll actually open up a third position, which is farther to the east of the Madison Airport. Uh, the uh, transmitter is actually a water town, and that's at uh, 119.15. And the, all that will be as in Zetas. And, you know, they'll they'll say, okay, these are the frequencies you want to call if you're, uh, if you're calling for flight following. And if they're able, they'll do it. But, uh, you know, they may or, not, may or may not be able just based on the uh, traffic levels. But uh, sure worth a try. And I think you're probably going to have better luck getting flight following from Madison approach than you will from Milwaukee. Okay. What about fuel? Do you recommend stopping, uh, you know, 100 miles out and refueling and topping off before heading into Oshkosh? Absolutely. Um, you know, there are, are things that can happen at Oshkosh. You know, when they have an accident, for instance, that runway is going to be closed for at least a couple of hours. Uh, you know, they got to get the airplane off. You know, they might have to have the uh, NTSB guys take some pictures or whatever. Uh, but they're definitely going to close that runway. Everybody's going to have to try and get crammed onto one runway. Uh, you know, they have the holding patterns around, uh, what is it, Green Lake and uh, one of the other lakes up there. Rush, uh, so Rush you Lake. Might get, yeah, that's it. Uh, so you might get a holding pattern, VFR, just flying in circles around the lake. 
uh, and who knows how long you're going to be there. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, if you're coming from a, a fair distance away, you know, you don't want to be tangling it up with everybody else at the end of a really long flight when you're fatigued and maybe not on top of your game, you know. So I would definitely recommend stopping, you know, someplace right after you cross into Wisconsin. You know, we've got a ton of great little GA airports. Stop, stretch your legs, fuel the airplane up as far as you can, and uh, then do the procedure so that you're really on top of your game when you do it. Yeah, that's what I intend to do. And it, kind of on, on my notes of personal minimums is once I leave that airport and I'm en route, um, all the tech is going off. You know, just a basic GPS with my three waypoints, ripping Hushkosh and, uh, uh, and Fisk. And, yeah, head out the rest of the time. Yeah, that's a, that's a, yeah. yeah, I know that's one of the things that's a, a really good call to the the wonderful things of, of wonderful benefits of technology do not hold sway when you're in high traffic VFR. Yep. Another thing that I'm planning to do is go ahead and sacrifice my uh, Chicago sectional I picked up this weekend and just go through and mark the heck out of it. Um, mark down all the waypoints, you know, circle stuff. You know, one of the things I've done, I, you can get this uh, contact uh, laminate paper, or, or it's basically, it's a la- contact laminate, so you could place it over the top of a sectional, and it gives you, a bit, there's all kinds of really cool things. For one thing, you can uh, mark it up. It l- makes any sectional last a lot longer. Uh, so if you're planning on using one sectional very heavily for a given short duration, uh, Putting that lamination on it is really helpful. But uh, the other thing you could do is uh, use a Sharpie and mark all the frequencies, the headings, altitudes, all your information that you might want to do for whether it's dead reckoning or just just so you don't have to squint and try to pick out a VOR frequency or any of the information you might want. You can just make it really in bold letters. And with a little uh, acetone, you can take the Sharpie off and it's back to being a virgin I learned that from a guy who uh, uh, was doing oh, it was in the Gulf War, and uh, that was how they did their maps. Just uh, allowed them to pick, you know, draw on a section or draw on their maps over and over and over again, and then just re- wash it all away and start over the next day. So you got a lot, lot of mileage out of your piece of paper. I don't think I'll do that in this case. Part uh, Chicago is not a home sectional for me, so it's just kind of a. I bought it because I needed it to go to Oshkosh, and I think it'll just be a souvenir from that from then on. Say, but it makes it suitable for framing. Keeps it from yep. getting all dog-eared. <laughs> well, and you'll have all your artwork on it to, uh, to frame exactly. as well. <laughs> well, and one another... thing that I have done every year that I fly in, and I do make this available to other people, I haven't actually updated it to make sure it is current with this year's Notum yet, but... You know, the NOTAM is, what, 30 or 35 pages long, and, you know, the last thing you want to be doing while you're trying to fly the procedure is to have your head buried in the NOTAM, making sure you're doing everything right. So what I did is I made a single-page flowchart that has all of the important points of the FISC VFR arrival procedure. I want that. So start out with the box that says, okay, you're within 30 nautical miles, 
you know, turn off your transponder, you know, uh, it's got the VFR cruising altitudes, which are different, you know, you're not doing the odd plus 500 eastbound and the even plus 500 westbound like you normally are. Uh, they kind of change the, uh, you know, a, a good chunk of Wisconsin into uh, 2,000 feet or 3,000 feet uh, for northbound, and then I think it's maybe 2,500 and 3,500 for southbound. Um, not looking at the notum right now, so I'm not quite sure what those are. But uh, yeah, they're different altitudes than you would normally be cruising VFR. So uh, you know, it has all that stuff for that kind of outer section, and then you know, it's it's got the okay, are they holding at Rush Lake? You know, and how you do that, and you know, here's the five different uh, arrival procedures uh, and the other holding procedure as well. So that you know, it just has you know, the five or six bullet points that you really need to know, like, okay, I'm landing on 2-7, I've got to fly up the railroad tracks, turn downwind at the quarry, et cetera, et cetera. You know, tower frequency is this. And so, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be updating that to make sure it is compatible with this year's NOTAM real soon here, and uh, we'll have to get a link to that somehow in the show notes. Yeah, that, that sounds particularly useful. For those with uh, a miles per hour speedometer instead of knots, the Cherokee I'm going to fly in has that. Uh, the Archer I fly doesn't. It's in knots natively. I'm planning on making up a little placard that I'm going to slap on the panel when I get within a little bit that says 104 miles an hour, <laughs> just so right. I remember. Because, you know, most of the time those miles per hour airspeed indicators have knots, but it's in really small font. And... I, I want it to be really noticeable. <laughs> well, Kent, I know there is one thing that is top on the list, and that is to read and memorize the NOTAM. Uh, what else do you have as kind of wrap-up final advice to, for people flying in the first time? Well, like I mentioned before, don't make this your one flight of the year. You know, there is really no room for not being one with your airplane and knowing exactly how it's going to respond because you really don't have any extra mental bandwidth to be thinking about flying the plane. You have to be able to fly the plane without thinking about it. You know, you need to think about the procedure. So make sure that you are very proficient. Go ahead and find a CFI and work on some of these things that are a little bit unusual, like the uh, the funky patterns we mentioned, and find those power settings that you need. And, um I really think that having uh, some things like a, a marked-up chart or the flow chart or whatever you can use that will help you keep your head outside the cockpit instead of inside when you're, uh, well, pretty much anywhere in the state of Wisconsin is a, is a very good thing to have. Um, and other than that, you know, uh, pay attention to the controllers and uh, be as safe as you can. Don't be afraid to go around, even though there's a gazillion pilots watching you, because the good ones are going to say, hey, good decision. <laughs> be safe and have fun. Easy enough. Well, thanks, Ken, and also thanks, Adam, for joining us, and uh, hopefully this has made it not so, quite so intimidating for people flying in the first time. Uh, I know I, I haven't been able to do that, but this year I know I'm going to fly into Oshkosh at some point, but I'm going to have to drive there first. There's always, there's always a first for everything. Stu, I don't know if you're uh, going to fly in with somebody uh, besides me. I'd be happy to uh, give you a ride out and in or something if you want to do that. But, uh, you know, it never hurts to go ahead and fly in with somebody else first, too, and 
uh, you know, just see all those things like, okay, where exactly is Fisk? Uh, and then when you fly your own airplane in, hey, you'll know what's going on a little better. Well, thank you again, Adam and Kent, and uh, I really found this informative, and I can't wait to get there. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I hope I've helped you guys and uh, all the listeners out, and uh, I hope you really enjoy your experience in Oshkosh. Well, good day, folks. It's Steve Vischer here from Playing Crazy Down Under, and I confuse easily. Now, let me see. Two stews, one mic, but they're all using one mic each, so I guess that makes three mics. Hmm, I can't work it out. Maybe you can. Let's go back to the Pilot's Journey podcast. Last year at AirVenture, I had the opportunity to meet Monica Petrello. She's the producer of Flyabout, a documentary about her journey flying a Cessna 172 through the Australian Outback. I was really taken with her story and ended up buying a copy of the DVD from uh, Linda Meek's site, the Girls with Wings website. And uh, Monica, first off, I want to just thank you for sharing your journey with the world. It was really fascinating. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for uh, buying a copy. It's, you know, it was an incredible, life-changing experience to fly around Australia, and it was a life-changing experience to make the film about it. But what I never expected was how incredible and gratifying the feedback was I was going to get. I have met more interesting people through showing the film than I would have ever imagined. It's really been wonderful to share the story. Well, how did the trip originate? I mean, that's a pretty major undertaking to go flying around the the outback of a a different continent. (laughs) Yes, um, I guess that's sort of a little bit longer story. Um, I... um, First of all, I, I got my pilot's license when I was 24. I, I had never really planned on becoming a pilot when I was a kid because I grew up in Germany, and in Germany it's it's quite too expensive to get a pilot's license and sort of a hobby reserved for the very rich folks. Uh, but when I moved to Los Angeles, um, I at some point I met a flight instructor at a party, and he told me that that's what he does. He teaches people how to fly, and I was quite intrigued by that idea and took him up on his idea of, coming out to Van Nuys Airport for a $50 introductory lesson. And of course, as soon as I was flying over Sherman Oaks and looking down on all those swimming pools, I was completely hooked and <laughs> decided to get a, a license. So I got my pilot's license. And when I told my dad, who still lives in Germany, about the fact, it turned out he was actually very envious. And he always wanted to get a pilot's license. So long story short... A year later, he came to Los Angeles with all his company vacation time and got his own pilot's license um, when he was 58. Uh, So another year goes by, another two years actually went by, and he and I had always wanted to go to Australia all our lives. We had talked about visiting Australia. And suddenly we went back to that dream and that wish, and we said, well, now it really makes sense to go because we could cover these great distances in the, and see the whole continent as opposed to just taking three weeks and traveling up and down the East Coast, which is what most people get to do. And so we looked in pilot magazines and we found this outfit called Guana Air Safaris. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they offered. They offered these tours where you could either go on a one-week or two-week or four-week trip uh, with their airplanes in a group of 
something like 10 to 12 people and uh, see Australians, see the outback. So we were like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We're doing it. We booked it and we had to wait two years until we could, it was our turn to go. Um, and another, so another two years later, we went uh, and flew from Brisbane all the way circa, um, uh, counterclockwise around the continent and circumnavigated Australia together with um, five airplanes altogether. How did the idea of the film come about? The idea of the film, well, I, you know, I, I work in the film industry and have done so for about 20 years, um, but I work in the capacity of a something called the script supervisor, which is sort of like an assistant to the director. So I've worked on other people's films for many, many years, always sort of hoping and planning to make my own film one day. And I, I, I kind of dawdled with writing a screenplay and tried to think of ideas that could make a good movie. And it never really came across the perfect story that would be worth being my first movie. And then as I completely independent of that, as I was packing to go to Australia, I it was about two weeks before and I, and I had my cell camera in my hand and it suddenly hit me like lightning. It was literally a moment like that where I was like sitting there and thinking, that's it. This is the story I'm going to have to tell. This is, this is my story and it's bound to be interesting. I, I didn't really know what was going to happen if we were going to hit bad weather or if there was going to be a lunatic on the tour or <laughs> if it was just going to be beautiful or whatever. But I, but I thought what I'm about to do is going to be interesting one way or another. So why don't I go out and tell this story? So I went out and bought a video camera, one of those mini DV cameras, and I quickly watched two or three documentary films um, because I didn't really know much about documentary filmmaking. And off I went, not really having too much of a plan. Um, and I went and I just filmed everything that came before my camera that, as you can tell, having seen the film, it's, it's sort of a very personal film. And the camera basically acts as my eye. I mean, I talk to people with it in front of me and I look out the window with the camera in front of my eyes. And so it was really a way for somebody who sees the movie to experience the trip as I experienced it. And so I filmed everything and I returned with about 25 hours of video footage, which sounds like a lot, I guess, <laughs> but if you, if you know these documentary filmmakers, they sometimes have three, 400 hours to make a one-hour documentary film. So 25 hours is actually not that much if you want to whittle it down to a good story. So um, I spent, after returning, I spent uh, about seven years <laughs> <laughs> trying to edit it. And, you know, granted, I had a lot to learn. I had to learn how to actually physically edit. It was a craft I didn't know before. And um, I taught myself how to do that. And then the harder thing was to, to, to actually distill all this random footage down into something that made sense and had sort of an arc and, and was emotionally compelling. And it took a long time. And I had kids in the meantime and got married and had to make some money working otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> so it just took a long time. But um, eventually, there it was. At what point did the, the idea of the flyabout uh, the 
is a walkabout is where that, what that's based on. But when did the idea of the flyabout being part of the journey and the uh, kind of the quest it, it come out? Is that something that you experienced when you were actually there, or is that something you did when reliving it through the, the footage? Um, that's a good question. No, I, the idea first entered my mind in those last two weeks prior to leaving for Australia when I, um, I, I, I just told you I rented three documentary films, um, and one of the films I rented from the video store was actually not a documentary. It was called a, a film called Walkabout. It's a, it's a feature film, and I think it was made in the 70s or something. And I watched that, and I was really intrigued by it. And that's the first time I ever heard about this idea of a walkabout, and I, I thought it was really cool. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, hmm, maybe I'll make that my story. Like, I'm going to go on a flyabout. And... <laughs> I went to Australia with the firm goal of having some kind of spiritual revelation. And I thought, wouldn't that be cool if my documentary film is going to be about this woman who goes down, flies around Australia, and then has this big realization and comes home and says, like, I've had a spiritual bang or whatever. Well, the problem was that never happened. (laughs) Because I was way too busy. I was much too stressed. There were way too many things going on between the weather and mechanical challenges. And, of course, the thing, the whole thing with my father uh, that was completely not anticipated. So as I returned, I, I spent a long time thinking, now what I do, you know, this was going to be my story. So I... Since I didn't have that spiritual revelation, I, I guess I don't have a movie. And I thought I'd failed, and I was ready to throw it all, you know, in the trash and, and give up. Uh, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and he said, you know what, Monica? Not everything in life works out the way that you plan. And sometimes stories are about looking for something and not finding it. But... I promise you, you learned something on that trip. You just have, have to figure out what that is, and that's what your story is about. And he was very right, and I went back, and I, I did find a thing or two that I learned, and I did realize that my story was really about not finding <laughs> You know, my walkabout, my flyabout was about not having that spiritual revelation or, or learning a couple other things. Well, I don't want to mislead anybody that uh, that it's a story about not finding something. It's a very compelling story of the relationships that occur. So I don't want to give it all away, but uh, it, I don't want anyone to also think that it's a story where, there, where there's no ending. It, it's really a beautiful film that, that shows a lot of experiences, not just in flying, but in human, human interaction as well and family interaction. Yes, I guess that's true. You know, that's one of the things I learned. I mean, I guess I've been asked since then, I've... I, I, when I do these screenings, you know, there's usually a Q&A afterwards and people ask me questions and I've been asked, you know, so what is the most important thing that you learn on this trip? And I guess the things that I learned are that the most important thing is if you have a dream, if there's something you want to do in life, do it. Just don't, you know, you might have a gazillion excuses. Oh, all kinds of things that can keep you from doing it, but ultimately just do it because it's going to be the most rewarding thing and it's going to make a difference of whether you're happy in life or not. 
Um, the next thing I learned is that when you do have a chance to follow through on your dream, things may not turn out the way you expect. And that doesn't mean that it's a failure. It means that it can be still a very enriching experience. And, and sometimes you find lots of little nuggets and, 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 you know, lots of other little lessons along the way. And, and I've also learned that you can find friends that are twice as old as you only because you share a passion with them. You share a way of looking at life. Um, and it's important when you do follow through in that dream and you have it happening, make sure you enjoy it. Like that was one thing that I, it took me about half of the halfway around Australia to realize that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about how you uh, you didn't find what you expected to find on the trip. What were some of the things that that you didn't expect that did happen? Um, any just something, whether it made in the film or not, just something that was a, a realization or a, an experience that was just totally from the blind side. Well, like I just said, that one of the things I just mentioned, like, is that I completely I, I realized. It's very important to enjoy the moment. It's very important. I'm a very good planner. I plan all my life. I always plan ahead and I look forward to things and then they happen and then I get too wrapped up in 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 the next thing to actually look out the window and enjoy it happening, the thing that I had looked forward to so long. So I think that's one of the things I learned. It's like sometimes stop searching so hard. Just look out the window. It's right there happening in front of your eyes. <laughs> um, and and uh, the fact that friends are sometimes hiding in the most unexpected corners. These people that I met were seven complete strangers to me and they t- were twice as old as me and had really nothing in common with me except I realized we share a passion for flying and we share a way of looking at life where you don't, it's never too late. It's never too late to live your dream. I mean, these people were all 60, 70 years old, and and they just said, I want to fly around Australia. So they did it. And that's such a great attitude towards life, I think, that, um, yeah, we became really close friends, and age didn't matter at all. I also learned that sometimes your relationships with very people very close to you would change. Like, for example, with my father, my father and I are extremely close and we're very much alike. And the last thing I expected when I went to Australia was the fact that we would get into an argument and the worst one ever in our whole life. And neither one of us expected them. We were completely blindsided by that fact and had to sort of, it was like running into a wall and then you feel dizzy and you feel like, stars circling around your head and you don't quite know and you have to redefine your relationship with each other and i i think you know we're we're very close again now but it was a it was a reorientation that was necessary after that and um i guess i should give people sort of a background what happened was my dad and i both didn't have very much experience flying i was a very new pilot i had 140 hours and my dad wasn't even less experienced pilot he had only about 60 hours when we went to australia and we were quite naive thinking that we could just share the cockpit and (laughs) and uh alternate doing the landings 
Um, that, of course, didn't work out, and it didn't take very long for that to become apparent. <laughs> and so we slipped into this conflict where he would try to the landing, and I got nervous because I'm not as experienced as a flight instructor. And so I would get nervous, and briefly, shortly, a couple feet off the ground, I would grab the wheel from him and take over. And that, of course, didn't go over so well with my dad. Um, but it was it was a tricky situation, and in the end, I think we uh, we both realized that we were just there was no good answer. We should have just been more experienced, or we should have anticipated that this was going to go easy or something. I don't know what we could have done better. But um, have you and your father continued to fly after the trip? Um, my dad didn't fly since Australia; hasn't flown since Australia. However. Um, I think that part he's quite content with. He actually, when he decided to get a pilot's license, he said to me, you know, Monica, I realize I live in Germany. Flying's very expensive here, and I don't have an airport nearby. So he, he said he was quite aware that he probably was never going to transfer his license into a German one and possibly never pilot another plane. But he said he would still get his license because even if the only hours he would ever fly would only be the ones necessary to get his license he still will have will have fulfilled his dream of flying an airplane and um, that's the attitude that he went into the whole thing with and i thought that was actually very admirable for somebody as efficiently thinking as my dad (laughs) um so no he hasn't flown since then and for myself i flew for a couple more years and then um i had two children so there was about a six-year window when i didn't fly um, and when I, when the film was finished and I took it to Oshkosh for the first time and I faced an audience and they all asked me the same question, <laughs> felt very embarrassed having to say like, Oh, well, actually I'm just, I'm not right now, but I'm on maternity leave or whatever. I swore myself that time. I said, next year when I come back to Oshkosh, I shall be a current pilot again. So, uh, as of about a year and a half now, I am current again. And I have been flying again, and I actually just recently took my seven-year-old daughter up for the first time. So I'm happy to report that. (laughs) (laughs) Have your kids shown an interest in aviation? Well, my daughter, like I said, she she just went on March 8th um, as part of this event to set a world record and most women introduced to flying. It was a a 100-year anniversary for the uh, women, piloted women. so I took her up on that day, and she was super excited about it, totally loved it. And I asked her afterwards, I said, so, Louisa, do you think you want to be a pilot one day? And she thought about it and she said, mm, um, can you be two things when you grow up? Because <laughs> uh, she really wants to be an artist, so she wanted to make sure she could do both, I guess. But, yes, she really wants to, I think. I think she liked it. That's great. Are there any other uh, projects of your own on the horizon? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't rule out if Louisa really does get a pilot's license that maybe 10 years from now we'll circumnavigate Africa and make flyabout part two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'd be a totally different experience then. <laughs> it would be. And we'll see, like, if I do as well in the, like, seat of the parent as I did in the seat of the daughter. <laughs> Well, uh, you will be uh, showing Flyabout again this year at Oshkosh, is that correct? Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to that. 
And where will be, people be able to find the, uh, the film when they're, if they're at an adventure this year? Um, Flybot is showing five times in the, sky, um, the, the Skyscape Theater that's inside the Air Venture Museum. It will be showing uh, Saturday through Wednesday, each day, once a day. And the schedule for that can be found on the Air Venture website on the, under the schedule. And then I have one special screening uh, at the Planet Perk Cafe, which is in downtown Oshkosh, and that's um, an event I am looking forward to. It's an open air showing after sunset at 8.30 on Wednesday. I believe it's the 27th. And for anyone that wants to, uh, to find out more about the film or to buy their own copy of the DVD, where can they get that? They can do that at my website, and that's www.flyaboutmovie.com. And there's a trailer there and some reviews, and um, it has a list of all the upcoming screenings, and you can also order the DVD there. Great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and I look forward to seeing you again at AirVenture. Yes, I look forward to seeing you, too. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, or experiences. You can reach us at our website at www.pilotsjourneypodcast.com. You can also get your comments played on the show by emailing an MP3 or leaving a voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can follow me as Pilot Stu, that's S-T-U, on Twitter, Facebook, or mytransponder.com. You can reach me on Twitter or my transponder as CFI Stu. It's S T E W. Also at CFI Stu.com. And you can follow me on Twitter or my transponder as ID Mike or at uh, November225Mike.com. Or you can follow us collectively on Twitter or Facebook as Pilot's Journey. Subscribe to the Pilot's Journey podcast in iTunes, the Zoom Marketplace, or at thevoicesinyourhead.com. Also, please consider leaving your comments or rankings so that others can find the show. Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast. And remember to enjoy the journey. And one mic. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. The Voices in Your Head.com.